Welcome back to this podcast series where we're thinking about how we think about the sorts of questions we get asked in pharmacy. This time we're going to look at interactions questions. A patient is prescribed a new medicine but they're on another medicine already that it might interact with. What are we worried about and how do we work towards answering the question? Should this patient take these two medicines together? So to start off it's probably worth thinking about how medicines interact and how we know they interact. To work out what happens in the body when someone takes a medicine is a bit of a challenge. The body is a really complicated soup of chemicals and connections and you're putting tiny amounts of a drug in, it goes around everywhere and then magically fixes the problem the patient had. If we fix cars the way we fix patients with medicines, the mechanic would stand at the door of the garage, throw a spanner in the general direction of the car and hope that it tightened the wheel nuts. Because of this, before the science was understood, The only way to know if two drugs interacted was to take the two drugs together and see what happened. Now, we know more of the science, though not all by a long way, SIP enzyme polymorphisms, transporter proteins and the like, and we have almost the opposite problem. We have so much data to work with that practically anything can be flagged as potentially interacting with something else via some mechanism or other. We therefore need to have a think not just about whether there's potential for an interaction, but whether there's a potential for a meaningful interaction. So, how can you assess the meaningfulness of an interaction? Well, it's the interaction itself, what might happen to the drugs, and then what that means for the patient. The patient wouldn't notice a drug concentration dropping by 50%, but they'd notice if that drop meant they had a stroke. So, for the interaction bit, what sorts of things can happen? So, medicines can interact in a number of different ways. They can interact pharmacodynamically, so how the drug works on the body, So, for example, two drugs might have similar side effects, so taking them together might increase the severity of the side effect. Or pharmacokinetically, so how the body handles the drug. So, for example, one drug stopping the body getting rid of the other, making it more bioavailable, or stopping the body absorbing it, making it less bioavailable. The pharmacodynamic aspects are probably easier to track and spot. Do the drugs do similar things? If they do, they might have additive effects. Opioids and alcohol both make you sleepy. If you drink whilst taking opioids, you might get very sleepy. Alternatively, do they do opposite things? If they do, one might counteract the effects of the other. Think also about interactions with the diseases that you're treating. You might not want to give something that has a high chance of causing itching if the patient is already really itchy from their jaundice. Moving on to the pharmacokinetic interactions, this is far more difficult to predict. The ones that we all automatically think about is interactions through cytochrome P450 enzymes. Something that inhibits the action of CYP3A4 might increase the levels of a medicine which is metabolised by CYP3A4. Alternatively, something that induces, makes your body make more CYP3A4, would decrease the levels of the medicine. Or in the case of carbamazepine, make life really complicated and induce its own metabolism by being both a substrate and inducer for CYP3A4. Drugs can be strong inhibitors or weak inhibitors, or strong inducers or weak inducers. So how much it affects the enzyme involved? You can therefore start to predict interactions between pairs of medicines that you've never tested. If medicine A has its levels decreased by medicine B, which is a strong CYP2D16 inducer, then it might also have its levels decreased by medicine C, which is also a strong CYP2D16 inducer. And the same approach can be used for transporter proteins. If you want to know if a medicine might affect a medicine that's moved by P-glycoprotein, but no one's had a look at this combination before, have a look and see if it affects the levels of digoxin. 
as peak glycoprotein is a major determinant of digoxin levels. That way you can extrapolate from the interactions you do know about to interactions that you haven't studied yet by knowing a bit about the potential pharmacokinetics of your medicines. So it all looks like we're in a perfect world now. We've got access to the science behind it and we can predict interactions between medicines we've not compared directly. Winner? Not really, because the messy reality gets in the way. We might not like to admit it, but we're closer to the mechanic throwing the spanner through the doorway than we are to the omnicognizant being observing the workings of the universe in perfect detail. Yes, one drug might inhibit CYP3A4, and another be metabolised it, predicting an interaction. But what if your drug is also metabolised by CYP2D16 as well? Could that pathway compensate for the reduction in CYP3A4 activity? CYP3A4 might be induced by another drug, so might increase metabolism of another, so decreasing levels. But what if it's metabolised to an active metabolite that's more active than the original compound? It gets quite messy quite quickly. So what can we do? What we really need to do is convert our theoretical knowledge and apply it to our individual patient medicines. Some interactions are so common and so marked that the combination needs to be avoided. We would always say don't take simvastatin with erythromycin. But for many, we have a level of uncertainty about what happens when we flag medicines up as potentially interacting. So we need to factor in this uncertainty when we're answering questions. So firstly, what about the medicines? If we assume that a particular interaction occurs, does it matter for the medicine? So if a medicine has a wide therapeutic window, and we think an interaction could reduce its levels by 50%, is that still within its therapeutic window? As you'll have noticed, loads of medicine doses are 50 milligrams. That's not because of some underlying deep structure in the universe that means that 50 is the magic number. It's chosen for so many medicines because it's a 5 and a 0. It's a round number that they happen to use. There's loads of 10 milligram, 50 milligram, 100 milligram tablets. There's a lot fewer 37.543 milligram tablets around. Medicine dosing isn't as precise as you might think, and therapeutic windows can be quite wide. So think about the implications of a wobble in the dose a patient effectively receives. If there's the potential for levels to be reduced through an enzyme being induced, will it still be effective? If there's the potential for levels to be increased through an enzyme being inhibited, is it likely to cause side effects? And this is where you need to relate it to your patient. If there's a potential interaction that increases levels, this is going to be more significant for a frail elderly lady already taking a high dose than it would be for a fit healthy young woman taking a smaller dose. An interaction that reduces the levels of an antibiotic being used to treat a raging infection might be more important than one that reduces the effectiveness of a sleeping tablet. And if you're not sure whether an interaction would cause a problem or not, is there a way that you can safety net your advice? Is there anything you could monitor to get an early sign that something's happening? A potential interaction that could maybe reduce your tamoxifen levels should probably be avoided as you can't monitor for it. The first sign that the interaction is real could be a reoccurrence of breast cancer. However, if it was an interaction that could potentially increase the effectiveness of a sleeping tablet, could you advise your patient to be aware that it could make them more sleepy? That way the patient could potentially keep taking both medicines which they presumably need, rather than stopping just in case an interaction is meaningful for them. Which brings up the last point, which is to think through the question in its entirety. If there's the potential of an interaction and you want to avoid the combination, what are you going to suggest as the alternative? Always have a think about the next question you're going to get asked, and if possible, preempt it. And that's probably the run-through of interactions questions completed. In summary, 
We now know so much science that we can flag up potential interactions all over the place via all sorts of pathways. There's pharmacodynamic effects, which are about how a medicine acts on the body, and pharmacokinetic effects, which is how the medicine moves through the body. Some will happen consistently, in which case always avoid the combination. Others can be more theoretical and are extrapolated from things we know about similar medicines, so you've got more uncertainty that the interaction will be significant for your patient. Some interactions happen all the time, but the clinical significance for an individual might vary depending on their personal circumstances. When you have a potential interaction flagged, the no-risk option may feel like it's to say, no, don't give them together. However, think about the consequences of that for the patient. If you're limiting treatment options based on a theoretical problem, are you doing more harm than good? Think about what the consequence of the interaction might be for your individual patient and how likely that is to occur. Could you safety net giving the two medicines together if that's the decision? Are there warning signs that the patient could look out for that would give them an early warning that the interaction is meaningful for them? That's not to recommend pushing the boundaries of safety, but can you make a shared decision with the patient as to what they feel comfortable doing? And that's it. Hopefully you found this useful and see you next time.